giving you exclusive access to the minds of industry leaders in this special edition of Brand USA Talks Travel, recorded live in London. Brand USA Travel Week UK and Europe brings together key players in the US, UK and European travel industry to discuss trends, challenges, innovations and the opportunity to drive future visitation to the United States. Here's your host, Mark Lapidus. This special Travel Week episode features British American broadcaster, podcaster and filmmaker Roger Bennett. In this conversation, Roger shares his unique perspective as an Englishman who fell in love with America through its popular culture. Here's your moderator for today, Brand USA Senior Vice President for Public Affairs, Aaron Wooden Schwartz. I'm so thrilled this afternoon to be able to speak with somebody who I've listened to and watched and admired for a really long time. Roger Bennett is a British American filmmaker, author, broadcaster, and podcaster. Two years ago, his book, Reborn in the USA, An Englishman's Love Letter to His Chosen Home, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and it inspired audiences all over the world. But when he puts down his author's pen, Roger's probably best known for bringing the beautiful game, soccer, or football, to the American audience. In fact, New York Magazine has called him the face of soccer in the United States. But he's not only a soccer guy, he's a lover of all things sports, and he knows how to communicate about the culture of sports and about the meaning of sports across languages and across boundaries. And he knows how to pick a winner. From the one in five Chicago Bears, to the basement-dwelling Chicago White Sox, and true to form, his first love is from his hometown of Liverpool, England, Everton Football Club. A couple of Everton fans, all right. So without further ado, I'm so happy to welcome to the stage the one and only Roger Bennett. From USA. Woo. Do not let my accent fool you. I love America. Almost as much, not quite as much, but almost as much as Bruce Springsteen and Dolly Parton love America. So I was going to say welcome home to England, but actually, is this home? Where is home? Well, I was born in Liverpool, which is an incredible city. Those of you who know it, it's a port city that looks out at the Atlantic and it's full of blaggers and dreamers and romantics who all look out coastally rather than look inwards. And most of us in the 80s, dreamt of getting out of there. Um, And ultimately I did, the book is my story. Um, I so adore Liverpool, I'm so proud to be there, but New York City is my home. New York City, we got some New Yorkers, got some New Yorkers in the house. So welcome to Brand USA Travel Week UK and Europe. Thank you so much again for being here. I've, I've heard you describe yourself actually as an American born into an Englishman's body. Why do you think your destiny was always so tied to the USA? Well, it's actually an American trapped inside an English boy's body. Is how, <laughs> how I felt it. I grew up in Liverpool. As I said, it's an incredible city. Uh, but I grew up in the 1980s. It was a time of real unemployment, massive uh, drug epidemic, real hopelessness. Um, it didn't feel like there was much possibility there. It was really, we had football and we had music. That's how we announced ourselves to the world. And the myth of my family, we left, uh, my great-grandfather left Ukraine. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, and he was a butcher, and he was headed, where would you go then? You'd head to Chicago, the hog capital of the world. And he got on a boat, and he got off the boat when it refueled on its first stop in Liverpool. He saw the one tall building on the Liverpool skyline, the Liver building, and was like, here we are, we're in New York, we're getting off. (laughs) I actually met an American guy who's um, family made a fortune in, in, in meat in Chicago. And I, I said to him, God, I bet it was your bastard grandpa, great-grandfather who told mine to get off the boat. <laughs> and you know, it, we were in Liverpool and we were stuck there. Um, and it was hard, it was dark, it was filled with challenge. I was very, very close with my grandfather who was also a butcher. And when times were tough, he used to always say, Chicago, we should have been there. We should have been there. And he'd fly over to America in the days before anybody flew over to America. When he had to like take a plane, it would like land in Iceland and then refuel in like Gander and then refuel again. And he'd come back with like tiny little fragments of America from Miami. He'd bring like the, the newspaper. He'd bring like a Coke can. He'd bring home like from Vegas a casino chip. He'd bring home these little fragments and he'd keep them all on this fireplace. We'd honestly, we'd look at them as if they were holy sacraments together. <laughs> I'd never been there until ultimately, as I'm sure we'll talk about, when I was 16, I did get to go 
for the first time, but it just filled my imagination. When my parents were like, well, redecorate your room, it's time not to have tiny teddy bears on it. What do you want? And I had the stars and stripes painted on my bedroom wall. I had the Statue of Liberty, a terrible, terrible, it's in my book, a terrible uh, artist rendition of the Statue of Liberty. But I knew it was the Statue of Liberty and the New York skyline. And every night I'd go to bed and I'd make sure the curtains were cracked so a tiny bit of light fell on Lady Liberty's face. And genuinely, whatever was happening in school, whatever was happening in the city, whatever was happening to my beautiful city, Liverpool, most of it which was filled with challenge, genuinely, I'd, that would be always the last thing I'd look at before I'd go to bed. And it was really a sense of possibility, a sense of hope, a sense of joy, and a sense of meaning was always there. So is there like a whole community of marooned people that were destined for the States in, in Liverpool, or are you the only one? They're called English people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by the way, this is what you're all here to talk about. This is not like I got really into stamps when I was 14. I became a stamp collector. How many are there now? Well, it's just me. This is, uh, this is, I mean, you are doing the Lord's work. You are genuinely, you are bringing manna from heaven. There is something and you work on it every single day. What you're bringing is joy, meaning, hope, just larger than life. I used to feel in Liverpool, life was lived in black and white. And there was this place I had never been to, but I imbibed through every sitcom, every piece of music that I purchased obsessively. I'd get albums shipped over from America that weren't even available in the United States. I'd get Rolling Stone sent over. It would come like eight weeks later. But it would promise me movies, that, television shows that wouldn't come out in England for years in those days. I'd be like, oh my God, this man, Tom Cruise, he looks so cool. And then I'd have to wait for two years until Top Gun came out. I'd be like, yes! Um, so I, like, I fed myself with this, with, with the Chicago Bears, with like Public Enemy, Run DMC, that kind of music. And it just filled my imagination and fueled my imagination that there could be another life where life could be lived in Technicolor. So life could be lived in Technicolor, and obviously there was a lot of specifics, the music, the sports, the culture. Was it sort of a general vibe and you just felt you always were meant to be there? Or what were the most powerful forces that really enticed you to really want to consume this, this thing that's called America? It's, there was, I mean, it was my relationship with my grandfather. Remember, he was always going, he was always coming back. It was genuinely like Columbus bringing back a potato. I'd be like, wow, what is that thing? And it would be like a plastic bag from 7-Eleven. I'd be like, wow! Um, it all on my wall. You know, there was the Chicago Bears, which loomed so large. This, the Chicago Bears, for those of you that don't know, they were terrible. They were awful for a decade. Hapless, hopeless. I know it's hard to believe because they are still hapless and hopeless. <laughs> but for one season, they became invincible with swagger and joy. There was a man called William Refrigerator Perry, who was a gentleman that could do it all. He could, you know, he had a gap tooth. He was a, a defensive lineman, but they also would bring him in to smite their enemies from close range. This enormously <laughs> joyous man. And they danced, they sang. Jim McMahon was this punky quarterback who just took... Walter Payton was just a god, a god. And they showed me, this kid, I was 14, 15, they showed me that, you know, you could change who you wanted to be, that their tradition was crap but they were suddenly invincible. And to a 14, 15 year old me, it showed me that what you were is not what you always have to be. Um, and then the other thing I'd use as an example is like sitcoms. I don't know how many of you are familiar with like English sitcoms here. My mum and dad were obsessed with them, like all English people. And English sitcoms, the three biggest when I was a kid were EastEnders, Brookside and Coronation Street. EastEnders was about working class poverty and misery in London. Brookside was about working class poverty and misery in Liverpool. And Coronation Street was about working class poverty and misery in Manchester. And they were enormous. And then suddenly Dallas and Dynasty came over. And I was like, holy shit. And they taught me two things. I mean, the problems in those shows, if, you don't, if you're too young to remember what they were, they were about like oil families in Dallas and their problems were about having too much money, too many, too many like cars, too many diamonds. I was like, those are nice problems to have. And I realized watching them that ultimately one was trying to give a message of possibility 
pretty crass possibility, but possibility. Man, Larry Hagman was a boss. But uh, the, the English one kind of uh, showed me, um, and it still does, that ultimately the English gift was to say to my mum, God bless her, she's an incredible human being, was to say, you think your problems are bad? Watch these poor people suffering <laughs> twice a week, every single week. Now, shut the hell up. Your life could be a lot worse. <laughs> and, uh, uh, those are two very different value propositions, two very different ways to, to approach life. And I must say, those, that American one was really like, enticing. Does that capture the difference between what propels Americans and what propels Brits? Uh, Steve Coogan, uh, he's an actor, an English actor, um, he said, and I think he's right, he said, if you give an English person the choice between their own success and your failure, they'll choose your failure every time. <laughs> <laughs> and he's from Manchester. Like, he's, you know, we, we looked at people in Manchester we're like, oh my God, I wish we lived in Manchester. So, you know, look, America is complicated. I mean, America has had many, many challenges like everywhere in the world. I won't be clear, like I understand, and I'm sure we'll talk more. Ultimately, as a 14, 15 year old kid, um, essentially try not to drown. All of this, you know, just this, every single sense of meaning that came over was my lifeline, but it was like my idea of America. It wasn't the real America. Mm. And there's a huge gap between the two, as I'm sure we'll talk about. But that reality, there is so much good in it and there is so much wonder and it still holds so deeply. I mean, I'm sure we'll get from there to here. You know, I spend my life now uh, filming with the biggest footballers in the world um, and they all come on because they want to speak to America. And I realise that they all want to speak to America and I'll speak to the biggest footballer, like Kevin De Bruyne plays for Manchester City in Belgium, one of the most exquisite midfielders in the world. Just an elite athlete for those who don't know like a godhead. I'm actually under serving by, he's a demigod. I give him demigod status. <laughs> he comes on, you know, I have hundreds of questions. All he wants to talk about is the NBA. He is obsessed, obsessed with the NBA and wants to talk about individual players, wants to meet individual players, wants to understand. You know, we have a lot of the NBA players who love football the other way and he wants to come and uh, connect to them. Uh, the NFL players, that love to come on. They're all in love with the football. J.J. Watt just brought Burnley. My God, J.J. Watt, this is an incredible moment. Just a gentleman that grew up in Wisconsin playing hockey and gridiron football and is now totally obsessed with English football. This fusing is, goes both ways. But almost all the Premier League players are obsessed with the NFL. Trent Alexander-Arnold, a Liverpool, just a prodigy. All he wants to do is come on and talk about NFL players, the NFL plays, the NFL mindset. And so when I engage with that, I realize it still does hold the mm -hmm. dreams, the imagination, the way this beautiful idea that you're selling still has a massive grip on human beings over here in Great Britain. That's one of the reasons at Brand USA we've actually partnered with the NFL now to be sort of the presenting partner here in the UK and on the continent and just leveraging the, the increasing awareness and love for that particular game. Um, and it's glad to hear that you know, so many of these global stars are also uh, really interested in American sports. Um, Does Kevin uh, De Bruyne uh, have a favorite NBA player? Is there a... Kevin De Bruyne, I mean, they, they, um, they all love the Golden State Warriors. Obviously, okay. they're all bandwagon jumpers. But I will say, <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say, I, I ultimately did come over to Chicago um, when I was 16. Um, I, in those days, you'd write to people, you'd have pen pals. Um, I got myself a Chicago-based pen pal and he invited me over for the summer. Um, and I jumped at the chance to go. He lived in the northern suburbs of Chicago. Um, it was like genuinely going into my own John Hughes movie. I don't know if there's anyone from Brand Chicago or if Brand Chicago, Chicago even exists. In the house. God bless you, you're doing, <laughs> you are doing incredible work. And whatever I can do to further, like every English person needs to taste Pequod's pizza before they die. <laughs> genuinely, genuinely. So I went over there, I spent a summer in the northern suburbs, uh, in Highland Park, uh, they lived. I went to uh, Nutria, which is the school that John Hughes made. It was genuinely like I was living in my own bloody John Hughes movie. And the agony of this was that when I got there to live out my Chicago summer, I was just uh, 15. The Chicago Bears, for the first time, they came and played at Wembley Stadium. They played, <laughs> they, they played the Dallas Cowboys um, in America Bowl one. 
Um, and I'd gone over to see them and all that crap, and they'd, ba they'd lifted up and gone where I'd been. <laughs> I, 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 Walter Payton uh, spent the whole week hanging out with Phil Collins in Regent's Park, and I've never hated Phil Collins more than when I saw that photograph. <laughs> so the short of it is, like, they flew back, they had the game on television, it rained. I was, so hang uh, I was such a disgusting kid, I was happy that it rained on all the English people um, who'd gone, gone, gone to watch my beloved Bears. Um, and the commentator at the end goes, the Chicago Bears will fly right back tonight to get on with their preseason. And I said to the guy that had us, I was like, we've got to go, we've got to go meet them. And I was like, what? He said, what? I was like, we've got to go to O'Hare and meet them, meet them, let's go. And Americans are crazy. My mother would have been like, you've got to go to bed at 10 o'clock. His mother was like, sure, go, 4 a.m. We're at O'Hare Airport. <laughs> um, there's no one there. There's like genuinely no one there. There's us, four kids waiting for them. Um, I don't know how many of you like remember this Bears team, uh, but finally they came out 4 a.m. Mike Ditka, who was a coach, he was just a, uh, he, was a he was an asshole, let's be candid. Um, <laughs> Uh, he, he was the what? first one out. Somehow, somehow he was out with a cigar in the airport on the plane, walking through the airport with a cigar, in which he tried to stub in my face. He goes, leave, leave these men alone. These men are your heroes. And I just flashed my little camera in his face. And then out of it, I met Walter Payton, came out, put his arm around me, uh, posed for a photo. The camera jammed four times. He was very patient. I don't have many regrets in life, but that is genuinely my major regret that I didn't get a photo of me and the sweetest, most wonderful man in the world. But then the one who just hung out the most was William Refrigerator Perry, who had like people carrying this incredible Louis Vuitton case. I don't know what the hell he took over or what he brought back, but it was like so much of it. And he put his arm around me. I was 15 and he just put his arm around me and he said, Live your, he's had a very high voice. He goes, live your dreams, kid. I did, I did, and you can too. I've lived, by the way, I've lived in America for like 25 years. My accent's still terrible. Um, it's genuinely, I can't do an American accent. But he said that to me. And now I work in football. I know that he essentially conglomerated every single cliche any athlete says to any kid that they want to get the hell away from. Like, live your, yeah, let's live your dreams, sod off. Um, uh, but like when I was 15, uh, and he, um, he even signed, he signed my, my little autograph book, Live Your Dreams, William, was what he signed. And I, was, I, I walked out in a stupor, and I was like, this man, William Refrigerator Perry, is telling me to move to America. It was meant to be. And I'm going to do it, and that's why. That's what I did. And it worked. All these years later, you did pursue your dreams, you did move to America, so. You talk about that experience in Chicago being like a John Hughes film, and certainly in, in the book you talk about this. It seems like the, the parents are nowhere to be found. It's kind of a Ferris Bueller's type experience. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that, that experience and what were some of the highlights of that time that maybe people wouldn't necessarily expect from someone that's coming over for the first time? Arby's. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, um, Arby's, Arby's was, I, 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 we, we landed at the airport, I got off the plane, I'd never been really out of England before, I got off the plane, it was so bloody hot and uh, kind of heat that I had never experienced before, like it was like being in a sauna and I assumed it was the propellers of the plane and that everything would be fine when I got away from the plane and then I panicked a little bit when I got the hell away from the plane and it was still like hard to breathe. And I got to the car, they picked me up, and we drove off and the American cars all look different and you have colors that have been invented here that we don't have in England, like teal. I was like, what is that? That's not good. But it took seven years till teal came to England. Um, we, was, we all thought Don Johnson had invented it, to be candid. And the car, the guy I was with, my pen pal, Jeff Owen, God bless, he drove me right into an Arby's. I can only describe the taste of my first Arby's. <laughs> it, was just, it was like tasting democracy and freedom. <laughs> That's humorous, but I, want, like, I, I, I will tell you, like, I've spent my life now just traveling across America. Like, it's one of the joys of my life. I get to travel across America and land in Minnesota and go and go to Matt's bar. Is anyone from Minnesota? God bless, what an incredible town. What a, what a self-confident, creative, joyous, singular city that is, that everyone should sing about and know. I think Minnesota always likes to be quiet because it doesn't want, you know, it knows it's not LA and, yeah, it knows it's not LA and, uh, and New York and it's all the better for it. 
Uh, we did a show in, uh, we had 5,000 people come in Minnesota. We had Atmosphere, a band that yeah. I'd never heard of before, but like, oh my God, pure Minnesotan brilliance. But tasting that Juicy Lucy at Matt's spot, which I did right from the airport, it was again, that similar taste. Every city has that feeling. For me, it was Arby's. And by the way, Arby's was so sight when my book came out that they sent me um, a lifetime pass to Arby's. <laughs> <laughs> Which I gave to my kids, and my kids are like, Dad, I'll be shit. <laughs> so, so, um, so uh, it, it was genuinely, uh, I'm telling you the RB story because you get a sense it was everything. Yeah. It was everything. It was the radio, you know, uh, it was it, watching, I can tell you the songs that were massive on the radio that summer that still, whenever I hear them, evocatively, it was Stevie Winwood, Higher Love, and it was Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel, uh, and a little bit Mr. Mr. The Broken Wings, but that one's not quite as cool. Uh, I mean, it was everything. It was going to the Cubs. Uh, I'd gone to the White Sox first the day before, old Comiskey. And so I was committed, I had the shirt, I was all in. And then the next day they took me to see the Cubs. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. <laughs> but I, already all in. But it was everything, you know, meeting the bear. And it did feel like a land where everything was possible, that you didn't just cheer for the bears, but you met the bloody bears and they told you to come. The beach, pepperoni, oh my God, uh, orange sliced soda, just immaculate. And everything in between. So, I mean, ultimately that is it. And each of you have a city with its own stories and its own law and its own mix of high culture, low culture. Ultimately, when I think about it, when I think about that Chicago experience, like the things that I did there that stick with me, it was that mix of, of high culture uh, and low culture and everything in between. But it did feel for me, and I think it probably feels so much for so many of your target audience, that when you are in your city, whether that's you know, Salt Lake City and you're going to like Arctic Circle Fries you know, you're going around the spiral jetty, all things that are like you've heard of, but my God, these are, these are, it's a, or, or you're going to um, Louisville and you're going to, you know, get barbecue there for the, the, the first time. or like go and get, tour the Woodford Reserve, go to Matt's Feed or whatever uh, barbecue place you, you want to go to. It does feel, I mean, this, this silly, naive sense of wonder that I brought to the Chicago experience your target audience, that's the joy of coming to the United States. I mean, everybody comes to Orlando, an incredible place. Um, you know, Vegas, Miami, New York. God, I hope Chicago, because I love that city so much. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the, the wonders of, I mean, I mentioned them. You know, I was just in Burlington, Vermont, two weeks ago. It was, it was mind-blowing. I'd never been there before. Uh, I was in Nashville, Tennessee the last week. Those Prince's XXX hot wings <laughs> are profoundly life-changing. And I'm, I'm still living out some of those life changes. Uh, five days uh, but ultimately, you do feel, as a, as, a, as a, you know, I'm American now. I do consider myself wholly American. But you do feel like you are living your own sitcom, your own soap opera, your own movie as you're navigating all of these incredible places. And do you think that, that appeal, that kind of authentic, almost quotidian, all-American experience, is that still alive and well for, as, as you go around the world, you talk to global stars and football stars and just people, you, you find people still have that sense of gravitational pull and a, just a calling to experience that possibility. More than ever, I can only say that, I mean, the world is dark and it's full of challenge and it's profoundly unsettling. It feels like everything is buckling. But one of the most profound moments of my life was becoming an American citizen on uh, June 2018. <laughs> um, when I was growing up in my grandfather's house, we had a photo on the wall of his great, 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 great grandfather, just a man with a beard, crazy eyes. And we'd always point to him <laughs> and be like, who's that? And my uh, grandfather, uh, I go for the blood. We don't know. We don't know his name, uh, but he's the one that killed the Cossacks when they came for us. He's the Cossack killer, and I'd be like, "Cool, okay." Uh, and I realised, by the way, that in my family, I hope this is my dream that in like six generations' time, please God, my children's 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 children will have like my NBC headshot on their on their wall, and their kids will point to it and be like, "Who's that weird-looking bald guy?" And my future generations will say, we don't know his name. 
But he's the one who brought the family to America. We've not got there yet, so it doesn't have applause. We've got to wait six generations. But, um, <laughs> but I will say, being in that room, so I was down in the southern tip of Manhattan in a courtroom, and I was one of, I think it was like, when I got there, the security guard said to me, you're one of, I think it was about 167 people from 47 different countries who are being made citizens today. And um, it was amazing. There was a long line to get through security, but it wasn't like an airport line of like, that's manic and it's stressful and everyone's losing their crap. This was like joyous. It was a carnival. It was, it was magical. And there was just people of all different backgrounds, all different styles, all different uh, bearings. We became American together. And afterwards, you do, you chat to the, the rest of the human beings. And long answer to your story, but I do think it's important. And I just say that anyone can go to a swearing-in in America. I go to one every year. At the last, um, last Constitution Day, I got invited by the National Archive to come and induct a class in front of the actual Constitution in D.C. It was really... I think it's the moment... Whenever you feel a sense of wanting to recharge, I can't recommend it enough just to go and witness this moment. Because afterwards... You speak to people about their stories, their journeys, what have brought them and their families to, to this room. We were all so different. And number one, I was with people who had survived civil wars. I was with people who'd walked across deserts to be in that room. I, I was there for people that uh, came to the United States with absolutely nothing to be in that room. I just survived a couple of beatings in, in Liverpool, uh, late night Liverpool pubs, which made me feel like, well, what was I moaning about all this time? But you get a sense of the shared joy, but most of all, however different we all were, and my God, it was just, it was just a Star Wars cantina of life in there. It was amazing. The one thing that united all of us was a sense of what America stood for in our lives. And this is really, really important which is a sense of hope, a sense of possibility. It gave us tenacity. And more than anything, it gave us all a sense of courage and possibility in the world. And so, long answer to your question, but does that still burn bright? My God, all you need to do is go and meet uh, new immigrants, new Americans, to have your own sense of American everything, just American reality, American possibility. Um, truly, truly surge. It, I would say in this time of darkness, in this time of challenge, that American, you are brand USA, but that element of the brand is so humanly powerful. I'll uh, lighten it a little bit. Is there anywhere in the States that you have not yet been that you really, really look forward to getting to sometime soon? It's the joy of my life. I do. I travel a lot and never take it for granted. Like I've never arrived at an airport in a town that's new to me and not felt a sense of possibility and a sense of honor to be there. I know, I know our, our fans adore our love of America. It's something that's quite central to what we do. When I do land in any airport, the first photograph I always post on our social media, um, I always post my foot uh, on the airport carpet and I just post it and then people guess where it is. Like, um, <laughs> And it's gotten to such a point that, like, airports send me their airport carpet. To... <laughs> I, I, I own a lot of airport carpet, which I love also. But in my office, in uh, my studio, is covered in different fragments of airport carpet that airports have sent me. Portland, Oregon, your airport carpet is... Oh, my, I don't yeah, know if there's anyone there. Carpet. Your airport carpet. I would, I would wear your airport carpet. <laughs> Uh, but I do, I post my foot on the airport carpet. And by the way, Nashville, Tennessee, your carpet's pretty dope also. And then, you know, we race out into the city and try and savour every kind of burnt end, every juicy Lucy, every chicken wing that we can and just, just revel in the wonder and the majesty. Um, so it has been something I never take for granted, you know, going to, oh my God, going to like San Antonio for the first time, just an, an immense, immense, profound experience. Texarkana, Birmingham, Alabama, these are places we've been to recently that are coming to mind. You know, God, Seattle, just the single greatest. That drive to Portland is, is stunning. I, I think Alaska, but is there anyone here from Alaska? You have so dreams in my head of this wonderful land 
Um, and that is the one place that is on the docket. It just needs to have a footballing reason to come out there. <laughs> I know a guy plays in the semi-pro league in Alaska. They got some game up there, so you may have I'm to booking my flight. Make, that, make that happen. We've talked a little bit about sports. Let's talk a little bit more about sports. First of all, how would you compare American sports culture and everything that surrounds our, our various world-class sports and the culture around that compared to, let's say, global sport culture or European sport culture? What are some of those similarities and differences that you've observed yourself? Uh, I'd say the world's uh, imploding. We're living in a world where half of the Premier League teams have American ownership. I mean, there's no better place to be a Premier League fan than the United States of America. When I moved to America, I moved here right before the last World Cup, 1994. Uh, my team, Everton, uh, who now are a dead carcass, um, <laughs> but back then were quite good. They, in 1995, they were in an FA Cup semi-final, and I had 373 cable channels, and not one of them was showing the game. I could not get the bloody game. And I ended up having to call my dad in Liverpool and have him hold the telephone up against a local radio broadcast. And that was when long-distance calls were really like, oh, my God, it had, took me about 40 months to pay that off, but it was worth every penny. Now football, I mean, I'm only saying that story because now football is so massive. Soccer, so massive in the United States of America. It's been one of the joys of my lifetime to see the men's and the women's games, two different stories, but both of them really thrive. And so these American owners now own so much of the Premier League, they're actually melding fairly remarkably, and it's been pretty good for business. You know, I think the things that draw the American fan to football, European football, is a sense of authenticity, a sense of tradition, a sense of community. Um, all of which, to be honest, it's one of the great tensions for the biggest football clubs, but because by becoming global, they're actually undermining their locality. So that's a tension for every major club. You know, Wrexham, one of the great stories. We work a lot with Wrexham. They, they have 18,000 tickets. They're trying to hold a couple of thousand back for American fans. That does not go down well locally with the people who have been going to see them forever. Those are the tensions that underlie it. But English people see American sports as just... I mean, number one, the weird thing about American sports is we, you kowtow to the owners. Like, if the owner's like, yeah, sod Baltimore, we're moving to Indianapolis. Um, like, Americans are just like, cool. Yeah, of course, it's his team. He can do whatever he wants. Like, Stan Kroenke can just pick up, I mean, his team, move it wherever the hell he wants. Like, it's a chess piece. So English people are like, that's slightly weird because there's been one, premier, one team that's done that in England and they are forever marked with a scarlet letter for all English fans. And like, that's one thing that is like very different. That you, you're always like, the owner, of course, it's their thiefdom. But we do look at American sports with just a sense of wonder. There's an ebullience. The sports tourism is enormous, that hunger. I supported Everton. When we won, it was joyous. When we lost, you wanted to go out and feel the taste of your own blood in your, in your mouth. Not me. Not me at all. But like Everton fans, it was like, death is terrible. Oh, my God. For the whole week, we'll have a migraine. American fans, I watched the first season ever. I watched the New Orleans Saints. They were terrible. They, went, they won like one game. And the place was still packed. And, you know, they put paper bags on their heads and became, they called themselves the New Orleans Eights. And I watched with wonder because genuinely Everton fans, when they lost, they're like, OK, we lost. Let's have a fight. <laughs> as one does. Yeah, as, as you does. do. Who wants me? And New Orleans fans were like, OK, we lost. Let's savour this. Let's revel in this. Let's, the beer's still flowing. The hot dogs are still available. Let's make memories together and celebrate everything. And I did, I looked at that with just a, uh, a sense of magic. And I do, I, I, you know, speak, I mean, JJ Watt is a regular on our show. I speak to him a lot. He loves the authenticity of Burnley. But I think we Amer English people look at American sports. You know, the Cubs, when they were losing, the bleachers were still packed. I remember watching the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Falcons, it, it was. And they were terrible when I started watching. But my God, when Billy White Shoes Johnson would return a, a, a kick, kickoff to the end zone and do this crazy dance. We looked at it, like, and he was losing by, like, 42-7, and he was, still, <laughs> he was still celebrating as if we were all watching his bar mitzvah. I was like, I, I think there's something beautiful in American sports, which is about the entertainment, the joy, and making meaning and making memories however you can, whenever you can, whatever the score is. And I think that's just a fundamental approach, not just to sports, but to life, to be candid. 
Do you like to tailgate? Do you ever get into college sports and kind of do the tailgate scene? Um, I adore college sports. I mean, all, all of the American sports to an English fan is just a sense of wonder. I mean, ultimately, American sports make a promise. Life is short. Do not waste a minute. Just make meaning however you can. The American sports thing that's still baffling as an English person is like that you can have a rebuilding season. In, in soccer, you can never turn around to your fans and be like, guys, we're going to be shit this year. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Once you have like made your fans realize we're going to be crap, who's with us? And everyone's like, yeah, we're with you. Like, like ultimately, I do. I believe that so deeply. I believe ultimately life is super short. Um, sports, sports traveling fandom, sports marketing to the English audience. I mean, it is. It is. Life is super short. We felt that during COVID. Sports stopped. Um, our business went up massively. Sports stopped. There was nothing to talk about, but we kind of lent into it massively tried to bring our audience together. Football came back. The first game was in Germany with no fans. We didn't know how it would be. There was no noise. Would it hold up? The Dortmund striker, then a man called Erling Haaland, scored the first goal post-COVID. And just over Twitter, social media, you felt that sense of deep, deep, profound connection crackling through, that making a memory, that shared experience. And that's ultimately what the American audience do better than anybody, that whole ritual. If I were to visit Buffalo, my God, in Buffalo, you have everything your average English person needs to make your city bigger than Vegas. And uh, I mean, once English people know about what life is like in Buffalo, that Vegas is going to have to up its game too much. <laughs> Jumping off cars onto tables and things like that. I mean, all of it, all of it, genuinely. Um, we have to go to Newcastle on a Saturday night for that. <laughs> happens in Buffalo um, uh, almost every year. You've got the life basics. You've got beer, you've got sausage. You've just got no uh, holds barred memory making. And I think like in each city that you have, you have something so unbelievably deeply profound to, uh, to offer the British market. Let's talk about soccer for a minute, or football. Which do you prefer to call it? Whatever you want to call it. Anyone who gets into that debate is just an asshole. <laughs> It's a, can I say, I, I, if this is the only thing you take from this conversation together, <laughs> yes. do you know who invented the word soccer? It's English people invented the word soccer. They invented, it's from association football, because it was rugby football, which was played by rich kind of upper class toffs. And then there was association football <laughs> played by working class people. And so it came, it was a shortened form of association football. But in America, we had NFL football. So we called it soccer. And we were very bad at it for a very long period of time. And the world loved that America was bad at soccer because America is bloody great at everything. <laughs> and the one thing the world cared about was soccer and the Americans were terrible at it. And they knew that we knew, Americans knew, that we were bad at it. And so they all were united at laughing at us no matter where they were. And they felt that sense of inferiority. I mean, by the way, our women are world beaters. I mean, just more World Cups than anybody. They are phenomenal. <laughs> Absolutely, and, 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 and to be candid, it's a conversation of another time, but they changed the game for everybody in the most joyous and wondrous of ways. And NWSL, that is a marketing thing for tourism. The National Women's Soccer League is a, we cover it aggressively with wonder and a sense of majesty. Um, that is a league that is utterly on the rise for sports tourism too. Oh God, Angel City in, in, in Los Angeles, the, the Portman Thorns, those games are unique and changing the way the rest of the world thinks about what's possible for women's sports. In the they are bucket lists, come and see, come and savor, come and revel in. But you know, the American men, we're a project, we're, we're, we're trending up. But they used to laugh that they knew we were crap. You know I mean, they were seeing Charles Barkley and the Dream Team elbow like, yeah, I, I remember that. I went in the Dream Team when uh, they were playing Angola. They were winning by like 70 points, the United States. I was not yet American, but I watched with wonder. Charles Barkley went up for a dunk and elbowed this poor Angolan gentleman in the head on the way up. And I remember like, I was being like, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit. You know, what do you... And uh, every American at the bar was on the table like, woo! <laughs> uh, and so the world sees that and they're like, oh, let's... They call it soccer. Let's make them feel crap about it. So they've been... For the past 20 years, they have crapped on us for calling the game soccer. And um, we've taken the bait. We've felt inferior. We do feel lesser. Uh, but I do want to say we should feel lesser about football in America no longer because what has happened and what is about to happen, and this for you guys must be catnip. I mean, you must be 
mean about this all the bloody time. And if you're not, then you need to really bloody quickly because the United States, stay with me here, because I'll get there. <laughs> Next summer, you have a thing called, first of all, you've got Lionel Bloody Messi. Lionel <laughs> Bloody Messi. Changed the game, absolutely changed the MLS. I mean, Miami, wherever you are here, it's incredible. It is incredible. You're right there, you're right there, you're everywhere, as you should be. It's incredible. This human being, like the single greatest footballer ever to play the game, was offered just bank trucks of cash to go to Saudi Arabia. And he's like, oh man, the pizza in, and I've got lots of money in Saudi Arabia. I've got the, I've got the pizza in Miami, which I really like. I'm gonna go to Miami. And he, he, went, he went to Miami because he wanted the lifestyle. He dreamt about Miami too, this human being, just like sad old Roger Bennett in his bedroom with the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Lionel Messi could have chosen anywhere. And he's like, I want that, I want that, I want that lifestyle. I want that wonder, I want that sense of possibility. Uh, we're very similar people. <laughs> I almost got confused when you came in. I thought, you know. The only difference is that he's got hair. Um, <laughs> um, but you've got Lionel Messi. By the way, that is enormous. That is, Lionel Messi is, if you don't know who he is, he's a five foot six. Uh, he's like an Ewok. If an Ewok was really, really, really incredible, transcendent of football. And he's more than just a five foot six Ewok who's really good at football. He is a global billboard that is just shining an enormous, white hot, burning spotlight upon Miami, upon the United States of America, uh, and upon football in the United States of America. So you've got him, my God. If we're a band here, he's our lead singer and he's gorgeous. <laughs> you've got next summer, you've got a thing called the Copa America which is the biggest football teams in South America, Brazil, Argentina, all those guys, they're gonna play each other in your cities. They're gonna use our nation as just this vast, incredible platform for their game, for our fans. They're gonna absolutely barnstorm across the nation. The United States men will be playing in that. Mexico will be playing in that. That's an incredible, my God. The Mexico national team and the audiences that they draw are just, a human phenomenon. The next summer, you've got something called the FIFA Club World Cup, which I won't bore you with because no one knows what the hell that is yet, even, <laughs> even, even FIFA. But what it does mean, it's a new invention for them, a new bloody invention for them. Um, they're gonna bring like Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Manchester City, Manchester United, not Everton. They're gonna bring all the big teams in the world to play each other again across our nation. An enormous spotlight on America in that time. And then the year after that, 2026, you've got the World Cup, which is a global eclipse, which sweeps in enti the entire world for 30 straight days. That's what it is. The whole world stops and shares one solid focus. And that solid focus is all of your cities. Every city, Kansas City, amazing. How did you do that? I love you. <laughs> I mean, just the lines at Oklahoma Joe's are gonna be so obscene, but my God, it's gonna be, uh, they changed the name, didn't they? What's it called now? Kansas City Joe's, thank you, I stand corrected. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be immense. So what you have are back to back to back to back drivers of the sport in the United States. By the way, both globally for your purposes, also both for my purposes, the American audience is like, remember I was the kid on the phone to my dad because it wasn't on TV in 1995. Now it's everywhere. And so for you lot, I mean, it's incredible. It's just a gift for tourism, uh, for sports tourism, for football tourism. Um, and you throw in the possibility that there's probably gonna be a Women's World Cup in the United States in 2027. Um, and uh, essentially, poof, watch out NFL, baby. It's funny you say that. My, my earliest soccer memory is actually the 94 World Cup, the last time it was hosted in the States, and it was Roberto Baggio missing a penalty kick in shame for the Italian team. And, and just recently, I was talking to my dad, who has never been a soccer guy, and he said, well, I watch every Saturday, it's on TV now. And people watch NBC and Peacock and USA because it's, it's on. And so many Americans now are finding it that way. And it's, I think it's really changing. It's a, well, it's a, I do a show called Morning Joe on Mondays. For Mondays, or is that for Morning Joe? <laughs> I love Mondays too. I, love, I, do. No, I, love, I mean, Morning Joe's amazing. Joe Scarborough loved football really early. Had me come on when I had no place in soccer. I had no place, but he loved it. You know, they'd be talking about like the threat of inflation in America with Mayor Bloomberg and the other side of me, they'd have like Obama coming on and then he'd turn to me and be like, now the Premier League. And the first time I ever did it, um, Donny Deutsch, who's like a talking head there, goes, whoa, 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 why are we talking about football? We have baseball and American sports. And I was like, 
Donnie Deutsch, do you have grandchildren? And he's like, what does that have to do with it? And I said, um, because ultimately if you do, which I think you do, you're an old man. This is a young person's sport. This is like 20 to 30 demos. So just shut up a minute and let me do my thing. Um, and I did it. And then the next week I was on and uh, Tom Brokaw was on the desk. And I was like, then Joe's like, Premier League. And I was like, oh, Manchester United. And Tom Brokaw goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And I was like, what? And he goes, why are we doing this? We're baseball nation. Uh, and I was going to do the Donny Deutsch thing on him, but it was Tom bloody Brokaw. It's like, <laughs> it's like royalty. You don't diss Tom. So instead, I just, he went off on me for about five, went off on me on live television. I just kind of slumped into my seat. I didn't say a word, just let him absolutely destroy me. And I thought my television career was over. And um, I limped off and they said, see you next week. And I was like, I'm not, why would you want me on? I'm not doing this every week with these assholes. Um, and they were like, don't worry, we'll never have you on with Tom Brokaw again. We'll always get him off the set. I was like, cool, cool. And so they always did. Whenever I came on, they'd always get Tom, yank him off. And then um, like about three years later, I was on. Tom Brokaw was still on the set. The, the clock's ticking down. They're like, I'm, they're, I'm like, get him off set, Tom. Get him off set, get him off, get him off. And they were like, don't worry, he's changed. And I was like, what? Until <laughs> um, so I go on, Tom, and Joe's like, oh, let's talk about Manchester United against Leicester City. And Tom Brokaw goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And I was like, what, Tom Brokaw, what? And he goes, well, three years ago, I uh, crapped on you live on Taz. I know, and we're doing it again. <laughs> and he goes, he goes now, um, since then, I've fallen in love with soccer. Um, he goes, I have three son-in-laws, so it's either two or three. And every Christmas, we like to fly to England and take in four or five games together. Um, and I didn't know what to say. And so he's just doing a kicker, and he goes, and we fly coach. Um, <laughs> and I just was like, oh, my God, if... We have Tom Brokaw in America. If Tom Brokaw has been won over by football, by soccer, then we've got everybody. And that's really where we are right now, is that English people are obsessed with American sport. Obsessed. Americans are the young audience. Other than the NFL, the young audience up to 30, soccer is the fastest growing sport in terms of watching. There's that adoration going the other way. And what you have now uh, for Brand America is those two loves melding together with those tournaments I won't list again. Just believe me, they're bloody massive. And ultimately, you guys in each of your cities will be the beneficiaries of this great American love. It's like heart to heart, that love. It's that profound. That's lovely. And the, the future does sound very bright, Roger. As we wrap up this session, I know you often like to sign off with encouraging people to have courage. Maybe you can share what that means to you and uh, what you'd like to wish for this audience uh, as it relates to courage? Um, well, first of all, the cur with courage is our sign-off. We've always ended every show just by, that's the last word, and I'll be honest, we ripped that one off, uh, Dan Rather, who very briefly uh, tried to end his newscast uh, with the word courage, uh, wishing him, he wanted a signature sign-off, and it didn't work for him. Like they, I think his bosses killed it. They thought it was very, very weird. But I think it's so beautiful. It's such a wonderful thing to wish people in life. And I think evermore, you know, I wrote my book at a time of true challenge. I wrote my book when, you know, the pandemic, the lockdown, political upheaval, the Black Lives Matter summer. And I did start to review my journey, what had led me to the United States, just what crazy journey it's been when people are like how are you what career advice do you have how can i do what you've done i'm always like don't follow what i've done it's mad <laughs> it's crazy it's like jumping off a cliff and just hoping and like genuinely i pulled it off but i'm not entirely sure how but that notion of courage that notion of belief and i started to think about the america of my imagination as a kid and the america that was a reality in that moment which felt incredibly different uh, it's the America that uh, I think almost everybody in this room is thinking about every day, working out how to articulate and package it. I can only say, having been in that room, having become an American, having met my fellow new Americans, um, it is an America that still, still, um, you know, even in my most romantic, and the America of my dreams is so different to the America of realities. But in the epigraph of the book, and epigraphs are very weird things because you're essentially saying, here, I've written lots of words, but I'm going to use someone else's much smarter words to launch my book. <laughs> and they're going to be better than anything that you, you, you read of my crap. 
And, and they were. I mean, of course they were for me. But um, I used the, the lines of Langston Hughes, the great American poet, um, who wrote, Let America be America again, uh, the land that never has been yet and yet must be. And ultimately, from a brand America perspective, it, the challenges to America, every single nation has challenges. Every single nation is far from perfect. I mean, England, where we are, I mean, is an example of that. So many strengths, so many challenges. The United States is a nation, so it fits into that rubric. Um, and I do believe, you know, when I say that word about courage and speak to our audience, ultimately what we're trying to communicate is about the America of our dreams uh, and the America of our realities, however we see those realities, however we experience those realities. And everybody has a different understanding of that. But the one thing that we can all share uh, is to have the courage to dedicate our lives to closing the gap between, between the two. And I think that's ultimately what we're all trying to wish. And ultimately, that's the promise um, and the core of what you're all dedicating your life to, communicating to, to the rest of the world. And as an American, I've got to say, I'm incredibly grateful to all of you uh, for what you do. You're communicating more than just cities. You're communicating more than just tourism opportunities or, or, or business B2B opportunities. Essentially, you are communicating dreams. You're communicating joy you're communicating the possibility of meaning and you're communicating the possibility um, of hope ultimately. And I think what you do transcends what normal other nations are doing. And I, as someone that's been a recipient of work like yours in past generations, I'm incredibly grateful. Roger Bennett, thank you so much for joining us. We'd like to once again thank Roger Bennett for joining us at Travel Week. Be sure and check out Roger's Men in Blazers podcast and his New York Times bestselling book, Reborn in the USA, an Englishman's love letter to his chosen home. And that's it for today for Brand USA Talks Travel. More Travel Week episodes coming. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Lapidus. This episode was produced by Asher Mirovich, Thonze Karaoke, and Casey D'Ambra. Special thanks to Alexis Adelson and Phil Dickison. Engineering by Brian Watkins. If you enjoyed this Live from Travel Week UK and Europe episode, please share it with your friends in the travel industry. Safe travels.